welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. Well, here we are getting into episode 13, and we've seen Jesus come to his vineyard in uh, chapter 12, uh, really chapter 11, and then getting into chapter 12, we'll be picking up today in chapter 12, verse 13, but the conflict is ramping up here at the end of Jesus' life. He has come into the city, and by fulfilling prophecies, claiming to be the king, And people see that. And some people are really excited and the leaders are really mad. Yeah, they really are looking for grounds on which to have him arrested, to have him killed. Uh, In the previous section, in chapter 12, in verses 1 through 11, we read this story called the parable of the vine growers where Jesus Jesus basically told them that since they're going to be denying God and denying his son, they're going to be cast out of the vineyard. And they knew that Jesus was speaking this parable against them. And so we left off in Mark 12, verse 12, where it says they were seeking to seize Jesus, and yet they feared the people, and they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. And so this next section that we're going to be talking about today, these groups of people are going to be questioning Jesus. They want to trap him in a statement that they can use against him to either discredit him or hopefully, in their eyes, get him arrested for things that he's said and things that he's done. That he's done. And so uh, we'll start in Mark 12, verses 13 through 17 today. And uh, I'll go ahead and start us off. We're reading um, Mark 12, 13 through 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Well, they first try to trap Jesus on one of the oldest traditions of governments in human history. Do we pay our taxes? Yeah. And it it just, it dumbfounds me that this is the question they have, but it's pretty clear why they're asking it. They're trying to trap him. I mean, that's what verse 13 said. The Pharisees and the Herodians come to trap him. And, uh, We've noted, I think, in other podcasts that the Pharisees and Herodians hate each other, but they come together for this moment of trying to get this guy they don't like in trouble. Right, and, and what they think they've done here is they've created a situation where Jesus cannot give a good answer. He can't give an answer that's not going to offend somebody or get him in trouble because the Pharisees and the Jews were anti-Rome. They hated that they were still basically enslaved to Rome. They weren't really their own free nation, but there are Roman soldiers there, you know, occupying the territory. They paid taxes to Rome. That's one reason that tax collectors were so despised and why it was so shocking that Jesus chose Matthew, a tax collector, 
as one of his 12. But the Herodians, on the other hand, are working for the man. <laughs> they're they're pro-Rome because they're working for Rome. They are the local arm of the Roman government. And so Jesus has both the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him. And that's very important. In these questions, the audience sometimes is going to be really important. Because if Jesus says, no, you don't have to pay taxes, which would please the Pharisees, well, now he's in trouble with the law because the Herodians are right there. They're going to say, oh, tax evasion, and they're going to come after Jesus for telling the people not to pay their taxes. Yeah. But if he says, yeah, yeah, pay your taxes, well, Jesus is a Jew living in Jewish territory, and he is going to destroy his reputation, destroy his influence by saying, oh, Jesus is telling us to bow down to Rome and to, to, you know, to be part of this whole problem. And so they think, aha, we've got him. Yeah, they think they've created this lose-lose scenario for Jesus. You know, he's not going to be able to wiggle out of this. We've got him. I also, personally, I think it's kind of funny the way that they come to him in verse 14. I don't think it's out of sincerity that they say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and you defer to no one. You know, they're they're kind of saying, Jesus, we know you don't take anything from anyone. You you just tell it like it is, Jesus. Oh, they're absolutely buttering him up. Exactly. I, I had one friend put it this way. Flattery always has a motive. <laughs> and so they are clearly trying to just butter him up and maybe try and get him to say something in a way that they can accuse him of. That's and right. so when you read that, I don't think they're being sincere. It's not like they've come around on Jesus and now they're trying to learn from him. Mark makes it clear for us that this is out of hypocrisy that they're yes. saying these things. That's right. And Jesus' response is brilliant and beautiful because he answers so many things when he gives his answer. And of course, he does it in almost parable-like fashion. Hey, bring me a denarius. You know, bring me the coin that you'd use for the tax. And he holds it up. And whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, well, it's, it's Caesar's, of course. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this is a beautiful teaching on both of these things. So the answer in short is, should we pay your taxes? Yes, you should pay your taxes. It's got Caesar's picture on it, so give it to Caesar. But the implication here is not just that we are bowing to Caesar by paying taxes, but it's that we ultimately bow to God. We give to God the things that belong to him. And I think there's a little parallel being made here that it be, the thing that belongs to someone is what has their image on it. This coin has Caesar's image on it, so it belongs to him. Who is created in God's image? We are. Uh, this is Genesis 1.26. Um, we are created in the image of God. And so we are to give ourselves, our whole life, to God. And so, again, he has now satisfied both parties. Yes, you pay your taxes, so that's satisfying the Herodians, but you put God first and give yourself to him, satisfying the Pharisees. In theory, of course, they're going to be mad about all of this. But the people just marvel, and so do we. What a perfect answer. What wisdom Jesus shows and how he answers this. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful picture. When we're made in God's image, we give our lives, we give everything we have back to him. God, we're the coin and God is written all over us. So we give ourselves back to him. So I think you, you put that well, Stephen. 
So this brings us to the next question in uh, the trial they're putting together, so to speak, uh, to test him. And it's a different group of people that comes to Jesus. We're going to pick up reading in Mark 12, verse 18, um, reading from the English Standard Version. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So this can be really weird to us <laughs> um, if we just read this parable, or not, not parable here, but this question for the first time and think, what is yeah, going what, on with the marriage? What in the world is happening here? Uh, and um, basically there's this group of the Sadducees. Um, Mark tells us they don't say that there's a resurre resurrection. But this hypothetical situation that they're talking about actually comes from the law. Deuteronomy 25, there in verse 5 is what they're quoting from. And basically, it was called the Leveret Law. And what it meant was, if you married a woman and you die before you're able to give her children, you know, that, that woman is now a widow. And so that man's brother was commanded to marry her so that the family name could go on and so that she would be taken care of. It was a beautiful law that God created so that people were always being taken care of and their names would go on into um into history go ahead Stephen. right right and and this was particularly relevant in the culture they lived in because you having children to inherit the land and to carry on the family name and to carry on the tribe in israel was a big deal like if you didn't have any kids like that was a problem in israel and sometimes you read it, that there were different scenarios people got themselves into where they're like, Oh no, what's going to happen if I have no inheritance and my family tree is cut off basically. And so this was God's way of providing for widows in Israel. So the Sadducees who don't even believe in the resurrection to begin with, come up with this ridiculous scenario to try to make Jesus look foolish by saying, Oh, well, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Because all seven of these guys married her. So, gotcha, Jesus. But they're trying to make him look ridiculous by coming up with a hypothetical. Yeah. Which, let me just say, that's what people still do. Yeah. Um, if you want to caricature a position, if you want to make someone look silly, come up with a hypothetical that doesn't have to have anything to do with practicality or reality. But the point is to try to make fun of someone. That is an age-old tactic that people use when they feel like they're cornered and they don't know what to say or what to do. And um, Jesus's response is really amazing, just like it was before. Uh, where'd you leave off? Ready for verse, verse 24? 24. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac 
and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Wow, he, he kind of comes out swinging at them in verse 24. Uh, this isn't something like, oh, you're, you're just kind of mistaken. Jesus says, you are mistaken because you don't understand the scripture and you don't understand the power of God. These are some harsh words coming from Jesus. And he gives them two answers, really. First of all, he answers their question in verse 25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Yeah. We see that marriage is a temporary institution given by God, a temporary arrangement. In the resurrection, there's not. Right. There's not marriage like there is marriage in this life. So that specifically answers their question in that, She's none of their wife in the resurrection. And, and as we often do, even today, we try to mis- we often mistake what heaven is going to be like by trying to compare it with what we see here. And I think even in Jesus's explanation here, he's trying to separate those two things. You're not really going to have a good grasp of what heaven is, and marriage is not going to be there. It's very different what's going to happen in heaven. And what's the second one there that you were going to bring up in uh, verse 26, Stephen? Well, he, he brings up the burning bush story, which is kind Reference of interesting. And of course, the Sadducees would have accepted the Torah. They would have sh- accepted um, the law of Moses. And so he says, haven't you read in the passage about the bush? And of course, this is a time when Moses was alive. He, Moses is the one at the burning bush. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for decades at this point. Long dead, yeah. And so the fact that God calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, when he talks to Moses, tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive somewhere. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So that's not the passage I would have gone to, to prove the resurrection. But of course, Jesus wrote the book, so to speak. Uh, He was there when this happened. And so he calls attention to the fact that, listen, these guys are still alive. Uh, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. And so he not only answers their ridiculous hypothetical, but he teaches them that the resurrection is real, using the scriptures they believe in to prove it. Yeah. And so Jesus, again, just turns this whole situation around on them. So let's get into the next section here, uh, the third question. And it's, it's a different question than the other two. Uh, Stephen, I think we're back to you. You want to read verses 35, uh, or sorry, um, 28 down to 34? Yeah. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All right, so we've had the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, now a scribe. And I'll say this, there's some debate on whether or not he was being sincere in asking his question here. But regardless of his sincerity, I think it's a good question. I mean, if I were able to meet Jesus in person, I think this would be a question on my list. If Jesus, if you could say there's one commandment I need to pay the most attention to, which one is it? Which commandment is the foremost of all? That's a good question. And of course, Jesus' answer comes from Scripture, much like he did with the Sadducees. The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord, your God, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Jesus comes back to Scripture and he says, you need to love God first. Everything else is going to fall into place if you are prioritizing your love for God. Obeying him listening to his commands, reading his commands, praying to him, all other commands fall under that one category. And that's why Jesus says it's the foremost. And the second is like it. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting again from the law from Leviticus 19 and verse 18. And so Jesus, I think if they were trying to trap him in this, the idea would be, well, he might say that all of the laws are the same. Like, all God gave all the laws, so all the laws have the same weight. And Jesus says, no, there is a number one law and there's a number two law, and this is what they are. Love God with all of your being. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's powerful that Jesus narrows this down and says, if you get these right, everything else will fall into place. And I like the guy's response here. He says to uh you're right. You've answered wisely. And he repeats the answers that he gave. And this is that he adds, um, this is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a theme that was repeated in the old Testament. Like when Saul uh, disobeyed God, um, but went ahead and offered sacrifices, he's told it's better to obey than to offer sacrifices. Um, Hosea, we'll talk about this in Hosea six, verse six that God doesn't just want our outward service. He wants our hearts. And that is exactly what Jesus is teaching here is that God is not just interested in the outward charade of the Pharisees and empty religion, but he wants us to love him and to love our neighbor. And, and that really will take care of the rest of it. But if we miss that, then the other stuff doesn't really matter. Jesus yeah. Often we've seen him in the Gospel of Mark getting to the heart, and this is a, another great example of that. What, what an appropriate time with everything that's going on in our country right now to talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. There are plenty of opportunities to love our neighbor right now, but especially in a time now when maybe resources are limited and our time might be more limited because we're at home or whatever have you, it can be really easy to focus on self. What can I do for myself? But if we want to obey Jesus, we don't only look out for ourselves. We got to look out for our neighbor as well and think about them the same way we would think about ourselves. And so this is always a timely teaching, but especially right now, I think our culture is not a culture 
that puts emphasis on others, but it puts emphasis on ourselves. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to think about the Lord. You need to think about others and think of yourselves last. Yes. And it really is important that we keep the first commandment first. And as we care for other people, there are times where we're tempted to please people instead of pleasing God. That's always a challenge. And so he says, the first one is you, you put the Lord first. You love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. And those two together will affect every area of our life. Um, this will transform us into the people that God wants us to be. But we have to be willing to put everything on the line, to love God, and then to love our neighbor. And really, if we're not loving God the way we ought, we're not going to love our neighbor the way that we ought either. Um, God's ways are the way that we learn to love and how we can effectively love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. So that brings us to um, the end of the three questions that Jesus has given. And now Jesus is going to ask a question. And it's pretty interesting. Let's read here. I think we're back to you, Chase. Uh, yeah. Mark 12, 35 through 37. Sure. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And a large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So, again, Scripture is at the center of most of these questions. And here Jesus uses some of the concepts, the, the expectations that the Jews would have had for the Christ. They understood that Psalm 110, this is where he quotes from, Psalm 110, verse 1, uh, that they were waiting for someone who was the son of David. And so that would have come from like 2 Samuel 7 and other passages like that, where God has made these promises to David that your son is going to be on the throne forever. And so he first asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That, that's who they correctly understood the, the Messiah, the Christ to be. But David in the Holy Spirit declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And it's a little easier in the Old Testament to see the difference here. Like, Lord said to Lord, like, what's going on? The Lord, the first part of that, is God's personal name. We might Always. say Jehovah or Yahweh. The second part of that is just my, my Lord or my master. And they would understand, you know, Yahweh said to my master. And the master there is going to be the king, the Christ. And so... In Psalm 110, again, David is writing about this, and David calls the Christ his Lord or his master. Yahweh said to David's master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. And so David calls the Christ his Lord. But wait a minute. He's the son of David. Yeah, the conundrum here is nobody calls their son Lord. That's, that's kind of weird. I mean, I don't have a son. I have a daughter. Stephen has daughters as well, but the point can still be made. I wouldn't call Sally, that's my daughter's name, Lord. I mean, that, that would be kind of weird, and yet that's exactly what we see David talking about. And Jesus is making a point from that. 
which I, uh, go ahead, Stephen, you were going to make it. Yeah, Jesus is showing them they don't understand who the Christ really is. They don't understand how both of these prophecies can both be true about Jesus. He's going to be the son of David and the Lord of David at the same time. And so they're not unable to answer his questions. He is demonstrating how little they really know after they've tried to catch him and he's answered wisely in every case he now puts them on the spot and they hear him gladly, but nobody's able to answer him. And at the end of the last section, it said no one dared ask him any more questions. So he has silenced all of his questioners. He's given them some things to chew on that really won't become clear until after this, when Jesus is proven to be the son of God, he can be David's son and David's Lord because he's the eternal God. He existed before David. Like he says in John before Abraham was, I am. Um, and he can be the son of David because he was born and took on the form of a human as a descendant, a physical descendant of David. And if you're, you're curious about where we know that Jesus is a descendant of David, in Matthew 1 and verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the rest of those verses, verses 2 through 17, it begins to trace all the way, starting with Abraham, all the way to Jesus and shows us the line that Jesus came down to where he is a direct descendant of David. And so if you're curious about that, read Matthew one, the genealogy there explains all of that for us. Mm -hmm. And and again, this is fulfilling multiple prophecies and multiple, multiple ways that God had said that that Jesus is the Messiah is going to come. I do think it's interesting that one of the challenges the Jews had is they did not know that one person was going to fulfill all these different prophecies. We know from other sources, even places like John chapter one, mm-hmm. um, where they're asking Jesus, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? And like, they're, they're kind of going down the list. Well, even earlier in Mark, who do people say that I am? And they have all those same ideas. Right is they were expecting multiple fulfillments of these prophecies. Well, one of them is going to come and be the Christ, who's going to be the military leader. He's going to be the son of David and sit on a throne in Jerusalem and beat the Romans or whatever. And then there's going to be the prophet like Moses who's going to come. And then there's going to be Elijah who's going to come. And there's going to be you know all these different prophecies, the suffering servant from Isaiah. And they don't realize that so many of these prophecies – to find all of their fulfillment in Jesus. And so Jesus is kind of illustrating that here a little bit by saying he is both David's son and he's David's Lord. Um, yes. This is just powerful to see how God has spoken all these things and how in the new Testament, all of these scriptures from the old Testament come together in Jesus. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's read what else Jesus has to say while he's there teaching in the temple. Stephen, you got 38 to the end of the chapter. Yes. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, 
This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So, of course, Jesus is in the temple where scribes often are. So it's a pretty bold thing for him to look at everyone and say, beware of the scribes. And he goes on to describe why you need to beware of them. Jesus says they walk around in long robes and they like the respectful greetings in the marketplace, you know, you know like, you know, scribe or rabbi or teacher, you know, they, they like that official title that they're assigned, I guess, on their business card. And in verse 39, they, they like the chief seats in the synagogues. When they go to banquets, they like that spot that's, that where everyone can see them and recognize who they are. And then Jesus says in verse 40, they devour widows' houses. That's really sad. They take things from the widows, and the emphasis here is the widows don't have husbands to provide for them, and so even what the widows do have, it's being taken away from them because of the arrogance from the scribes. And even on top of this, they pray, but they're only offering these long prayers for appearance sake. That's really sad. Prayer is supposed to be this special communication between you and your God. And yet Jesus is there are these men who are only doing it because of how it looks to other people. That's right. So Jesus, he's really coming down hard on the scribes here. Yes. And I mean, this is a really an illustration of the problem that he addressed back when he talked about the greatest commandment. It was one of the scribes who asked him the question. And he says, the most important thing is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And really, the scribes in general had failed on both points. They weren't loving the Lord their God because they were hypocrites. They, they were too busy them. loving themselves. Right. And they also didn't love their neighbors themselves because they're devouring these widows' houses. And maybe through the temple tax and other things are just taking away the little bit that widows have left to live on. And that's illustrated by the immediate following story uh, of this widow who comes to the temple. And they're there at the temple watching the offering box. And this widow comes in. And of course, there's all these people coming and putting in huge sums of money. And this widow puts in these two little coins. that just like nothing. And Jesus says, she put in more than anybody. They're like, wait, what, Jesus? Did you not see like what she put in? And he says, well, the reason it's the most is because that's everything she had. And there's two lessons that we can get from that. I think the main lesson in the context is that look at what the scribes have done to her. Look at what the greed of these religious people has done to this poor widow. She has nothing but these two coins left to live on. That's it. That is a shame. And they ought to be extending love and compassion and support to this woman because she's in need. Love your neighbors yourself. And so they've totally missed the mark. But then a point that is also made from this that I think is a fair point to make is from the widow's perspective. She has two coins and she's come in to offer at the temple and she could just put one in and keep one for herself, but she puts in both of them and she's willing to give everything that she has left to God. And that's a powerful example for us. It is. About loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the widow exhibits that 
Yes, absolutely. And that is often the point that's made from this text, and I think that's fine. But contextually speaking, this is an illustration of some men who are greedy and who are taking advantage of those who are poor. Um, but nonetheless, I think there's a huge lesson we can take from this poor widow. And this Let's, really illustrates the, the kingdom of God. Is, is yes. The kingdom of God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. And that's exactly what happens here. He's just silenced the Pharisees and Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes. And now he's exalted this widow and says, this is the one that God sees. She might get lost in the shuffle to everybody else, but God saw what she did. And this is the upside down kingdom. Again, that theme has come up a whole lot in Mark. Well, that's our time for today. We're thankful that everyone got to listen with us next week. Lord willing, we're going to be talking about Mark 13 where we see the prophetic side of Jesus. He's going to prophesy about the temple and some of the judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem, and the temple's going to take a hit in that. So we'll talk some about that next week, Lord willing. If you're enjoying what you hear on the episode today, please subscribe, rate, review. Those really help us uh, to get this podcast to more people. Um, If you're interested in online Bible studies, check out CapitalCityChristians.com. There's more information there. If you'd like to reach out to us personally, 717-585-0949, or shoot us an email at CapitalCityChristians at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening today.